and they are off. The governor drops the mass mandate for outdoors, and organizers of major sporting events are hailing the decision, and they are moving into high gear. We hear from Dr. Jim Barahal about the planning for the Honolulu Marathon, with or without the participants from Japan. We had decided about six weeks ago that we would open the Kama'aina early entry for Hawaii residents on June 1st. So we we knew we were going to do that. We did that because in order to have any chance of putting on an event as big as the marathon and with as many moving parts, we had to begin the process internally of saying we're going to do this and begin to get the entries, begin the organization of the event, also work with our sponsors and, and our team to to begin that planning so we could actually put on an event in December because if we waited into the fall, it would be too late. There's no way we could pull it together. So we had already made that decision to take early entries from Hawaii residents and then mainland with the caveat that in this COVID world, it's possible that the event would not be held for reasons outside of certainly our control. So that being said, with the announcement by Governor Ige about no longer needing a face mask outdoors, that was tremendous news for us. That's not the reason we made the announcement, but it certainly added a lot of strength to our belief that we will have the race in December. So if you look at the whole picture, and I do that both as a race organizer and also as a physician, and I've been very involved with COVID testing, both with Hawaii Pacific Health and with Dr. call Maui, so I'm pretty familiar with what's going on out there. And we certainly know that the number of cases are dropping, the amount of testing is dropping, the vaccine rate continues to go up. So everything is moving in the right direction, not only for the Honolulu Marathon, but I think for society to begin to return to some sort of normalcy. Kids will be going back to in-person school. Mayor Blanchardi is allowing youth sports again. Certainly there's many states that are completely wide open right now. And I don't mean just the states that people might raise their eyebrow at, like Texas or Florida. The one that really caught my attention last week was Fenway Park in Boston, home of the Boston Red Sox, because Massachusetts was a state that had been pretty locked down. They had a pretty serious amount of cases and deaths there. And Fenway Park, if you've ever been there, those seats are really close together. So the fact that they're waiving any kind of capacity limit for Red Sox games in June with 35,000 people sitting elbow to elbow, that was very powerful to me that indicated that the idea that we can go outdoors again and that it's safe, that was very helpful. We know from the science that outdoor activities are safe. There's really no risk of transmission, especially when people are moving. So I think the science and what the CDC is saying really way strongly in favor of that that we are going to put the marathon on in December. It's going to be safe, and it's going to look a lot more like the marathon that we all know, remember, and hopefully love than some completely different event that's going to have to be done in a way that will satisfy, you know, requirements that may not be based on science anymore. So I think the science really supports the idea that we can have a fairly normal marathon. But I divide this into two things right now, both as a race organizer and as a, as a physician. I call it the science and the sentiment. The science is moving very strongly on every level towards this will be safe. The sentiment, as often as the case, is lagging that a little bit. We know that there's a percentage of people, and it's understandable, that don't want things to open up, don't want to have any tourism, and certainly don't want to hear about a bunch of people getting on airplanes from all over the world and flying here to run in the Honolulu Marathon. I'm aware of that. That's a sentiment. I don't think it's backed up by the science right now, but I think it's something that we all have to be aware of. And as we move forward to open up Hawaii to all sorts of activities, we have to be respectful of the sentiment. But I think we have to follow the science. And, you know, unless things start to change again dramatically, I think Hawaii will be pretty open in December. Now, what about the Japanese wild card. Yeah, the Japanese situation, of course, is a little different right now. Japan is about half of the finishers on the Honolulu Marathon, almost all of our sponsorship, about two-thirds of the economic impact of the event, which the direct spending is about $140 million a year. That's a tough situation, not only for Hawaii tourism, but for the Honolulu Marathon, for sure. We've had Zoom meetings and continue to have meetings every week with our Japan team now for well over a year. We have no expectation whatsoever that there'll be any visitors from Japan to Hawaii until October. So we're working very hard with our sponsors and our Japan team. And hopefully as Japan begins the rollout of their vaccine program, which has lagged the United States by several months, 
We do hope that the situation in Japan will track the situation in the United States. And as we move toward October, November, December, that we'll see the resumption of some form of safe tourism from Japan. But I don't think we can expect to have the numbers that we've had in the past for the Honolulu Marathon. The last time we put on the physical event, we had between the Honolulu Marathon, the Star Trek Park 10K, and the Kalakala Mary Mile, we had almost 34,000 entrants and, you know, about 30,000 people actually participating in the events. And all of those people, about 15,000 of them came from Japan, and most of them came with somebody. It averages one person coming with each participant. So roughly 30,000 people came from Japan. And doesn't seem like that's going to happen this year. So when I say that how the marathon is going to look a lot like it's looked in the past, I'm saying more from the point of view that you'll see people moving down the road. I do believe that we're going to see that without a whole lot of things having to change. But clearly it's going to change because there's no way that we're going to have that, that number of Japanese people here. And that's, that's something that, you know, is, um, They've been very important to the race. So economically, we're going to have to look at the event and make sure that without the, the huge Japanese contingent, that it's still economically viable and that we can still put on the highest quality race. Yeah, I mean, if you're not sure if you'll have the Japan sponsors, a lot of your efforts then will focus on the uh, local residents who might be running and also from the domestic market. We've seen a huge surge in tourism. You know, the West Coast is very strong. So we expect to get a fair number of people from the mainland United States. But even at our peak, we only get about 3,000 people from the mainland United States. As far as Hawaii entries, a lot of those Hawaii entries deferred their entry from last year. And so we won't get any revenue from those people. So certainly from an economic point of view, as the Honolulu Marathon is a business, it is going to look very different. And it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of, lot of planning to make sure that this race is economically viable. Because as you know, we receive no no state funding or no government support for the event. Right now, it's the end of May, and we're still in Tier 3. It's hard to predict where we're going to be in December, but I think it's going to be far more open than it is now. As I say, the science is clear that outdoor activities are safe. The sentiment is lagging, and Hawaii is one of the few states that is not completely open at this point. So I would expect, if the situation continues to move in a positive direction, that by December a lot of these guidelines that we have now are not going to be in place. And so we do have a plan if we have to put the race on with the kind of things that we were talking more about last year, social distancing, masks, no volunteers, no spectators. I mean, I understand that, and that's what we planned on doing last year if we had been allowed to put on the event. But if you look at what's, what's happening, I mentioned Fenway Park. All Major League Baseball is basically completely open. And not just in, as I say, kind of red states like Texas and Florida. It's everywhere. The NFL just announced that their stadiums will be operating at full capacity. If you saw the PGA golf tournament last week with Phil Mickelson coming up the 18th hole, surrounded by thousands of people. Granted, they lost a little bit of the crowd control, but the mainland is wide open. And so I think as Hawaii moves forward and as the data continues to come in, that outdoor activities are safe and people crowd into stadiums and do those kinds of things. I believe that in December, the guidelines that we would have to operate on today will not be in place in December. We did have a virtual event last year. It's called the Virtual Beach Fest. It was actually very successful. We had 16,000 people in that and about 6,000 from Japan. So we are going to continue the Virtual Beach Fest because there's many people that enjoy doing the Honolulu Marathon from wherever they live. For a number of reasons, the main one being they weren't going to travel here anyway. So we, we actually kind of found that we reached a whole new market. So it wasn't just people who were planning on running the race, and then we canceled it, and they decided to do the virtual. That was a lot of it, but not all of it. So the virtual Beach Fest will continue, and we do expect to get several thousand people. Um, it was popular in Japan, but people from Japan really want to come to Hawaii. Yes. Uh, of course, they can't really travel anywhere, but... It will never replace people actually coming here. From our sponsor's point of view, they were very supportive of the virtual event, but that varied by sponsor. Mm -hmm. For example, Mizuno, which was their first year as a sponsor, the athletic company, that was a tough one. They were very supportive, and they provided the shirts, but they have much more of an online business, so they were, they were very comfortable with the idea of, 
of a virtual or online race. But we really, in order to get back to where we were, we're, we're going to have to have the people come. And we know that even if things completely opened up in Japan in October, it would be impossible to get that many people here that quickly. I think that we would be battling the sentiment. Even if the powers would be all said, the science is clear, you know, we're now the NFL or MLB or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. We're just going to open things up. It's safe. The sentiment, especially as it regards tourism, is still going to be a bit of a, an obstacle to overcome. People are, are still very fearful. So we have to balance that. We want to make sure that we're respectful of the local community. But I do believe the event is safe. I believe it would be safe if it was held now. So I think when we get to December, I'd be surprised if we're still operating under a tier system and that we have those kind of restrictions. But as we all know from COVID, things can twist and turn. But I think the announcement by Governor Rigay lifting the outdoor masking was a huge thing in terms of how events like ours will be perceived. Yeah, well, a lot can happen in six months, so we'll keep our fingers yes. crossed. And then, yeah, so anybody uh, who hadn't signed up and didn't sign up last year can do that June 1st. <laughs> yeah, we have about 5,000 uh, people that have deferred their entries uh, from last year. So that's what we're, we're going to start with, and we have the combine rate. And we think the demand is high. Most of the other big marathons, many of which were rescheduled from the spring, mm -hmm. such as Boston, will be held in the fall in New York. So I think you're going to see uh, London will be – and England was really locked down for a while. Mm -hmm. So we think there's going to be a number of big events before ours. We think, as I say, as as uh, the spectator sports open up and the stadiums are filled again and concerts resume, I think by the time we hit December, I think people will accept the fact that things like the Honolulu Marathon are beneficial and can be conducted safely without a whole lot of hoops to jump through. That was Dr. Jim Barahal, president and CEO of the Honolulu Marathon, talking about the planning for the 2021 Honolulu Marathon in December. And a reminder, early bird signups for Hawaii residents starts June 1st for the discounted fee of $68. I expect that in the fall, all students will have in-person learning opportunities five days a week. That's where they learn best. That's where they belong. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona wants back to school to mean just that. But are parents and teachers on board? I'm Anthony Brooks, Miguel Cardona, and his push to get students back in classrooms. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. It's now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us this morning. Hi, Anita. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, I'm jealous. You got to go on that tour of the new state hospital. Yeah, so I went on the tour with the state hospital, at the state hospital with a group of legislators and news media. Um, as as you know, it's a new, the state's new psychiatric facility. So it's on the grounds of the uh, state hospital, and there are still some other, you know, older buildings that are still there and still active and operating. But this is the new 144-bed facility that they've been building for several years, and it's finally opening this year. Yeah, I mean, you know, there have been lots of stories over the years about the state hospital. I think we were under a consent decree because of, you know, the overcrowding. But this added space, I'm sure, is really going to help. It's you know it's it's not just the the size of it and it, um, and the number of patients that it can fit, but it's also the configuration is what I was hearing from state officials. They were saying that they expect this to be safer for both patients and for staff because of the way that it's built and designed, and um, just all the different ways in which it was configured, you know, with safety and security in mind. Yeah, I'm sure they've got lots of cameras, uh, you know, everywhere now, right? 
Yeah, it's it's a very high tech facility. You know, we, we walked through um, kind of like, you know, in an airport where you, you walk through and you, you get everything checked. And then there's even uh, machines that are um, located in the hospital that can detect if you even have like a pen on you. It's, it's really interesting. Um, and so you are there there's even in certain elevators there are spaces to to put patients if they might be dangerous they um could have separations within the elevators themselves um there's hundreds of cameras they they wouldn't say exactly how many but far more than existing facilities um and a lot of the hospital sections are designed in a way to maximize staff sight lines so that staff can easily see the patients that are there you know different units of the hospital fit fewer people. So right now, a, a unit might fit 46 patients. And in the new um, hospital wing, there's a unit that fits like um, more like 24 patients at once, which um, I was told by state officials that that makes it a lot safer if you're looking at fewer patients at once. Um, and staffers are also going to be equipped with um, little buttons that they can press if they, if needed, that will alert security of their location. Um, and state officials anticipate that this means that employees will see fewer injuries. Yeah, you know, I recall, gosh, many years ago talking to a nurse who had worked there in a, a certain unit, and I think it was you know overnight or something, but they didn't have enough personnel, and she was the victim of an attack by a patient there, and she described how she had to protect herself using a mattress, a bed mattress, and so yeah, I can I can see, you know, where the the union might be happy if you know it means facilities are are uh, are safer for the staff. Mm -hmm. One one instance, we were standing by a nursing station, and you could si if you were sitting in that nursing sta station, you could simultaneously view patients who are playing volleyball, gardening, walking down the hallway to their rooms. Um, the other thing about this facility is there are therapy rooms, classrooms. You know, in, in the old facilities, they had classrooms and therapy rooms, but those had to be converted to bunk rooms. But there are dedicated rooms for this. There are volleyball courts. There's even two pickleball courts. It's a computer. <laughs> lab where pa patients who are higher functioning can work on their resumes. Um, there's, you know, gardens where patients can meditate or, or work on gardening. It's really um, quite a, a therapeutic place in comparison. So, it's, yeah, facilities. so really the facilities will help with attitude adjustments if there needs to be just just because it's a, um, a better environment for everybody. Well, one thing that um, the state officials pointed out was that a lot of the, the vast majority of the patients here have really severe substance abuse problems. So said so 90% have substance abuse problems or even more than that. And so one of the first things that you're doing is you're kind of helping people um, basically, you know, eat, try to work on those problems first, even before you can get to the underlying trauma that might be leading to some of the behavioral problems. You know, and escapes were always a big concern before, you know, because the Windward Community College campus is, you know, right next to it. Uh, and I imagine they've done a lot to beef up security. Oh, yeah. So the new facility has a single entry and exit point for patients, a, a salad port to prevent escapes. They said they were partially inspired by, you know, looking at Oahu's jails and prisons and, and understanding, like, how to make it so that, you know, patients can't just walk away and get on a plane and fly to Maui <laughs> and then California, as Randall Saito did a few years ago. Yeah, no, uh, no one expected that for sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so um, uh, I know that uh, they'll what, be moving patients in slowly into that new facility? Yes, starting in August, they're going to start moving them on in phases, and they're also doing a big hiring spree for staffers, everything from janitors to nurses. So if you're job hunting, um, you know, just know the state is hiring. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Anita. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the new museum-wide exhibition Joyful Return on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org.
Hawaii has a new Youth Poet Laureate. It's first, in fact. The Maui Arts and Cultural Center held the inaugural ceremony last weekend, joining a wave of cities across the country to dole out this honor. But what about this moment is calling us to look to poetry for answers? The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote has the story. The first youth poet of our showcase today is Youth Poet Laureate finalist, Lua Bowman. My name is Lua Bowman and the title of my poem is I Will Be Free. I await the day when I will be heard loud in the conjos my other land. A sound loud in the gun triggers are pulling us. A sound loud in the gunshots that are fired at us. I await the day- The Maui Arts and Cultural Center kicked off its ceremony with a performance by Lua Bowman, a junior at Oahu's Punahou School. And at the end of the night, she rose to the top. For our first ever Hawaii Youth Poet Laureate program competition and challenge is none other than Lua Bowman. Make some noise for Lua, please. Lua joins the ranks of Youth Poet Laureates across the country who represent over 50 cities. I caught up with her to talk about what the honor means to her. I'm feeling so grateful right now. Just being able to have this platform to share my voice and more specifically my Black voice has been such an honor to not only my school but also my community, which is the Black community. And I hope that I will amplify more voices within my own community. The Maui Arts and Cultural Center pulled off Saturday's event in partnership with Urban Word, which runs the National Youth Poet Laureate Program. The MACT's Education Director, Maura Persh, spearheaded the project. The inspiration for this event was to really highlight the young artists that we were seeing all year with our work with poetry in the schools. And we wanted to collaborate with the National Youth Poet Laureate because we saw that the Poet Laureate program was giving this kind of new light or shine to the young poets across the country and in a way that we knew in Hawaii would be really special for these students. There were many different steps related to how we ended up from the start of this program to the performances that we all saw on Saturday. As we kind of know this is a movement that can grow and grow and grow, we know that it was important to support teachers. And so we started working with teachers with that four-day workshop in January and February and then proceeded to have five months of weekly workshops where Travis and Itai, the hosts of the event on Saturday, were kind of co-led workshops where we also had guests from the National Poet Laureate program. So we had a regional youth poet laureate. So other 16 and 17-year-olds come and um, lead workshops and help the students kind of in designing their poems, writing their poems, thinking about how they wanted to be um, performers and perform their poetry eventually. So we're really grateful with the way that this was our first year, our pilot year. So we ended up trying a lot of things out and changing a lot of things related to, you know, the circumstances that we were given. But uh, we are excited with how it turned out and excited for it to really continue growing and build in its Hawaii iteration. Lua was one of 11 youth poets who participated in the event. Lua's poem stood out for its refrain on black dignity and grit in the face of violence and oppression. Since the rise of BLM last June, I think that was a time for many black Americans, including me, to examine our blackness and to take a step back and realize what it means to be black. And for me, poetry has always been about reclaiming my image as a young black woman. For young poets, I think it's important to own your own narrative. When it comes to concepts of justice and liberation, which I strive for within my community every day, art and creativity and poetry and literature all enable us to give ourselves the permission we need to find a solution that, that doesn't sell us short. I think Lua's work is very timely, especially given what's been going on. That's Travis Kalula-Ao-Thompson. He's a co-founder of the literacy nonprofit Youth Speaks Hawaii, and he co-hosted Saturday's event. Someone who was born and raised here could very much, you know, sort of easily have a blind spot for the dichotomy of race and the black-white binary that American history so, so oftentimes offers us as the narrative. And I think with Lua, her poem was a way of sort of reminding everyone, even if it is not something that we see every day in the news here, it's every day on people's minds, especially writers of color, especially young people who are seeing the world for what it is because of the national attention given to things like police brutality and white supremacy, racial violence. And so I think her poetry was very timely. 
Why do you think that it is particularly important to recognize, and I know that the ceremony got delayed a little bit, it was initially slotted for 2020, but why do you think that it might be particularly important for our community to have a Youth Poet Laureate right now? Anytime that you have the opportunity to provide a platform for the young people of Hawaii to do anything that their peers just on the other side of the pond are doing, need to do that. When people saw Amanda Gorman at the inauguration for President Joe Biden, I think there was an opportunity that was made for many people who have been doing this in the community already to all of a sudden have a space where they can be noticed, to have a space where they could put the foot in and sort of provide this programming where there would otherwise be a vacuum. If there was any year for it to get started, any year after which Amanda Gorman performs at the inauguration and is given a platform, arguably one of the largest platforms that any youth poet has ever been on. Mr. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. That was NPR coverage of 23-year-old Amanda Gorman performing her now-famous poem, The Hill We Climb, at the 2021 presidential inauguration. She was the first-ever National Youth Poet Laureate appointed by Urban Word. At just 19, she was only a few years older than Lua. Amanda Gorman is so elegant. She has so much poise, and she's so eloquent with her words. And it inspires me so much because I look up to her every day, and... I envision myself maybe being in her position one day. Here's Lua Bowman, Hawaii's first Youth Poet Laureate, with her poem, I Will Be Free. I await the day when I'll be her lara than the conjures in my motherland. A sound lara than the gun triggers that are pulled on us. A sound lara than the gunshots that are fired at us. I await the day when I'll be her lara than the images of my ancestors in my history book the same ancestors who leaped off their ships, knowing sunken death outweighed a lifetime of bondage. I await the day when I'll no longer be obliged to hold up the way of the world while simultaneously taking my ancestors' whip lashes. I await the day when I'll no longer have to render aid to my battered black pain. I await the day when I'll no longer be treated as a beacon, a beacon to those who treat my blackness as their gesture and a beacon to those who disrespect me like the white law. I await the day when I'll be heard louder than my ancestors' full lips, the same full African lips that once spoke kingdoms into existence. While my DNA is stolen, duplicated, and injected into the savior of mankind, may we never forget our freedoms that are accomplished through lifetimes of pain. May we never forget the powerful grit that our skin has bared us through in history. May we never forget our passionate resolve that our skin will never refrain from doing. May my people one day be heard. May I one day be free. Congratulations to Lua Bowman and all the poets who participated in the Youth Poet Laureate event. Uh, Newsflash, Lua's poem has been published in the National Youth Poet Laureate Anthology by Urban Word entitled A Tiny Grain of Sand. To learn more about the Maui Art and Cultural Center's events, visit their website at hawaiimauiarts.org. For 10 years now, a little museum in Long Beach, California, has been home to Pacific Island artists and their work. It's been described as a hale, a gathering place for far-flung artists looking to connect with each other while they are thousands of miles away from their home island. We spotlight a mostly virtual exhibit entitled Pacifica Transmissions, which connects artists with an artifact from their home or from another island culture. It could be a Hawaiian drum or a Chamorro slingshot or a woven Samoan cloth. 
It's a voyage of discovery of what binds and connects us across the uh, diaspora. We talked recently with Marquita Mickey Davis, who is Chamorro, and with Kiki Rivera, a Hawaii storyteller who relocated to Southern California just before the pandemic hit. Well, the museum is the Pacific Island Ethnic Art Museum. Uh, it's in Long Beach, and it is the only museum in the contiguous United States dedicated to the history of the peoples of Oceania. And it was started by a Dr. Robert Gumbiner, and it's been under the care of um, Auntie Fran, our director, Fran Lujan, who's also tomorrow. And he's very open to curating contemporary Pacifica artists, an indigenous artists here in Southern California who are descendants of Pacific Islanders in Oceania. And um, she's really opened up the gates for us to come and really engage with the ancestor pieces that, are, that live uh, within Payam's walls. And Pacifica Transmission is born out of a residency, which she had kind of plotted out for this year, but as you know, pandemic hit, and we had to make some adjustments, and this really opened, uh, opened up some things for us to connect in a way that I don't think we, we would have been able to connect um, had the pandemic not happened, because we're using um, social media platforms to really broaden our reach and scope of audience, and we were able to, you know, have, since it was a single artist for each month, uh, we had such a small crew that they could they could come in and really have this like I think valuable time um, with their ancestor piece. I think we really pride ourselves on that. And there are just so many of us here within Southern California that you know we're always looking for these nodes and these you know places to you know really connect and call home and learn from one another across our cultures. You know, we went through personal network folks that may have come to the museum before have those kind of connections, pre-Pacific transmission, and then um, others who are on, you know, on their journey. Kiki is, you know, somebody who relocated to Southern California very recently, and so we were just excited to bring her into the family. Kiki, you got your degree in theater and playwriting from UH Manoa. I graduated in 2017, my master's in playwriting. For myself, this transmission is so much has to do with communication, and it's not so much about art practice. It really is about the connection and the communication with our ancestor uh, that we've been assigned to or that has chosen us. And I, uh, in, in my theater practice, that's also what I do, just try to keep a connection with the ancestors, make sure I'm telling their story as, as well as possible. So that was really great to be able to connect again with an ancestor who I wouldn't usually have a chance to connect with. The Dukai is inspired and has roots to the people of Palau, but she was carved, the one that I worked on in particular was carved in Yap, and that was really interesting, you know, just to have this, to experience the vastness of our ocean in this way. You know, what I love about the Pacific is just, they're, you know, they're so diverse, and there's something that binds us together. It's kind of the same. You know, our binding agent is, is the ocean. It's the water. But you're absolutely right, Catherine, that we all have such unique perspectives and, and stories and, and backgrounds. The museum space is what different than maybe what people might think of as a museum. What feels different is usually in museums, everything is behind a glass case, whereas in Payam, all of the artifacts or, or replicas are outside, and we can feel them, we can touch them, we can be in relationship with them, and that's something really special that you don't get to see in regular museum spaces. The final transmission will be in, on May 28th at 10.30 on our Facebook page, Pacific Standard Time. I will be the featured artist, and, and that will close us out for, um, for this year's programming. My ancestor piece is a direct match. I've been paired with the Chamorro um, Atu Atupat, which is our swing stone. And it made its way about close to 10 years ago into the care of Payam, 
and uh, I have been initiating a relationship with the Swing Stone and will be telling that story and showing some of the expressions that have come um, through our time getting to know each other. We do have a YouTube tra uh, channel, and you can find the links um, through PIAM's website, which is P-I-E-A-M.org. We also uh, encourage everybody to follow at PIAM underscore arts um, on Instagram, and there are announcements there as well. But the archive of video documents lives on our YouTube page and our Facebook page as well. Where exactly is this museum located? It's on the corner of Alameda and 7th in Long Beach, California. We are generously funded for this programming by the Roomba Foundation of Long Beach. So it's with their generous support that this could be made possible. And we are looking forward to, there's some things in the works, so we're just, uh, but hey, if anybody wants to support us, we would love to you know, continue bringing this program to everybody. And then, uh, so what's, uh, what, what's on uh, tap for, I guess, the next phase of this? Do you, have, do you have another season <laughs> launching? Are you going to do something special for the summer, or how does that work? We don't have anything. Uh, we're going to take a little break for the summer um, and then, uh, you know, hopefully plan something for um, fall or in, um, you know, in 2022. So uh, we're just staying open right now um, to, see, to see where the sign uh, guide us. Um, but again, we encourage everybody, you know, people to reach out to us um, if they're interested. We really like to keep this going. And our, um, you can contact um, the Pacific Island Ethic Art Museum or Pacifica Transmissions at gmail.com. Next month, we're also having, in partnership with Epic, we're having a, a little exhibit done by, by Keiki, by the children. And it's going to be about recipes for community immunity, addressing our COVID-19. That's going to be a collaboration with Epic and Pacific Island Ethnic Art Museum, and that's going to be showing June 7th through July 7th. We just reopened on Wednesday, May 19th. So the hours right now are just for the weekdays, Wednesday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. We've been hearing from Mickey Davis and Kiki Rivera. They were talking about the Pacific Island Ethnic Arts Museum, which just reopened in Long Beach, California last week. The final Pacifica transmission featuring Mickey Davis takes place on Friday. Look for links later on our website. Support for HPR comes from Keiki Kaukau, maker of Hawaii-inspired wooden toys designed to represent the Aloha State and its unique blend of cultures. Play food sets, puzzles, games, and more at keikikaukau.com. As Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month comes to a close, we turn the spotlight on a Hawaii filmmaker, Bryson Kainoa Chun. He was the only Kanaka Moli selected to participate in the Sundance Institute's 2021 Native Directors and Screenwriters Labs. The conversations Russell Subiono sat down with Chun to find out the significance of the selection and to get his perspective on inclusion in the film industry. You know, Sundance, I think we, as filmmakers, especially in the independent world, we look at Sundance as kind of the gold standard, especially in America, in terms of independent film. And, you know, one of the exciting things is they do a lot of outreach into a bunch of different communities to kind of find and, and discover and uplift new voices. And one of the best places for that is their indigenous program run by Bird Running Water, and they have a great team of people there. And, you know, over the years, there have been other Kanaka Maoli filmmakers that have taken part in, in these labs, but 
it is really exciting to kind of be that representative this year, you know, developing a, uh, a new pilot script with that, with that group. And, you know, we get mentorship from filmmakers that are working in, in film and television and Sundance really curates your mentors to kind of help develop your scripts in, in whatever ways you, you feel like you need. So it really is a great opportunity and Sundance is one of the best places in the world to do it. While you're in the lab, you're working on developing a pilot. Can you share a little bit about what your pilot episode is about? It's a show, it's an hour long crime thriller called Poi Dogs. It takes place on the island of Oahu. So it's a, you know, Hawaii based crime thriller. And it's basically in a nutshell, it's about this woman named Olivia. She's a, a Hawaiian woman and she's a dog groomer that lives in Kailua. Uh-huh. And, you know, her life is pretty normal in terms of what we think of to live in Hawaii until one day the FBI comes and tells her that somebody placed a hit on her on the dark web. And so she has to kind of figure out amongst her family and friends who the culprit might be, or, you know, maybe there's people in her extended community. And that's kind of the, uh, it's a race against the clock to kind of figure out, you know, who's out to get her. And there's a lot of suspects, of course. I've been very fortunate with it, this script. You know, it's a script that I wrote, I've been working on for maybe a couple of years, but just in the last six months, I've been very fortunate. It was on the inaugural indigenous list through the blacklist, which is also like a really important, you know, uh, marker for success in our industry. And it's, I'm very fortunate to be part of that list with, you know, a lot of great indigenous filmmakers and also with Alika Maikau, another native Hawaiian filmmaker and writer. And it also helped me to get, this script also helped me to get into uh, the Cape New Writers Fellowship this year, and then also Sundance. So it's, it's really exciting for me because, you know, on a personal level, sure, but what it says is that this really kind of unique, weird Hawaii story is actually resonating with a lot of different people. You know, when you posted on Facebook that you had been selected for this current Sundance opportunity, you said that when you were selected five years ago for a different Sundance fellowship, that opportunity five years ago was a validating experience at a time in your life where you didn't think you could pursue writing or filmmaking at all. Why was that? That was sort of coming out of college. And I I was in ACM for a little bit, you know, the Academy for Creative Media at UH Manoa. And all of my friends, if, you know, if in one way or another are associated with ACM and yeah. great program. And we all took that time in those years to make a lot of great short films. But really the leap between making independent work here in Hawaii and then trying to establish yourself in Los Angeles or in Hollywood, that, that leap can be pretty big. And I know for me, I didn't really see a path. And I couldn't quite, you know, for myself, think, how am I going to make that leap into mm-hmm. making a movie or, you know, writing for television? And Sundance was kind of a very validating experience because it said, you know, this is one of the biggest independent film festivals in the world, if not the biggest. And for them to say, actually, your stories matter mm-hmm. and your your writing matters and, you know, it's important that we foster your work in particular. It's really something that says, okay, maybe I do have the ability or I do have the stories to make this happen. And it's a matter of just doing the work. And what made that lab five years ago so exciting was it was Sundance's first initiative that they brought to Hawaii. So with Bob and Linda Nichols, who helped to support it, as well as Taylor Chang at Honolulu Museum. Right. They really coordinated with the Sundance team to support a handful of Native Hawaiian filmmakers and, you know, a bunch of which, a bunch of us have like, you know, gone on to work in in film and I know one of them is going into production very soon, which is really exciting. So it was a really great opportunity to start with. Speaking of your films and your stories, congratulations on your short film, Other People, being selected to stream on the Criterion channel. And you never let me pick songs on the radio. No one listens to the radio anymore. Yeah, but people still listen to music, not just NPR all the time. NPR plays music too. Yeah, like the Philharmonic playing the Nutcracker or something. Yeah, exactly. I like Cardi B. She makes money. What does that even mean? Look, I'm just tired of listening to all your white guy, vocal fry, Carlton sounding talk radio. Carlton is black. 
Urkel, then. Urkel is black. Then who's that guy that always hangs out with Kelly Kapowski and Mario Lopez? Screech? Yeah, him. That is not a good comparison. Whatever. I'm just saying, you never give me a choice. Let it go. You always dismiss me. Just drop it. As someone who works in public radio, I want to say that NPR has more than just classical music. More than yeah, just right. Philharmonic. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're right. I um, totally forgot about that. Right. This film was a surreal look at a couple in the final moments of their relationship. And it's very different from your previous film, from Capico, which is about a local guy learning to get along with the father of his deceased girlfriend. What you like? I heard you took the Pico from the hospital. Yeah, so? So I want it. For what? I want to go up the mountain. I'm gonna take them. You can come with me. When you set out to become a writer, a director, did you already have an idea of the kinds of stories you wanted to tell? Or are you the kind of storyteller that kind of lets the story come to you? With Kapiko, I knew I wanted to tell something very personal and something that had to do with my own indigeneity. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that, that was the script that resonated enough to get me into that first Sundance lab in, in Hawaii. And, you know, that was really exploring at the time in, in, in a topic that I was really grappling with myself, which was my own native Hawaiian identity. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what kinds of things made me Hawaiian and what kind of things pushed me to the fringes of that. And that's really what that film was born out of. But I do think in terms of my evolution, in terms of the stories I, I'm interested in telling, it's, I'm really drawn to weird <laughs> things. And I think um, what I want to stress is that I think the next stage in, in all of our filmmaking, and what's really exciting is our Hawaii hui of filmmakers, is that we're starting to step out of really the conventional dramas and starting to branch out into genre work. So you know, we're starting to see more, you know, horror and starting to see more comedies. And I think those are the kinds of things that are really primed and ready for indigenous filmmakers to, to occupy those spaces because, you know, I mean, I'm kind of getting on a soapbox, but, you know, being like living in a place that is colonized and, you know, it, it can be like a horror movie or it can be like a dystopian thriller and, Sometimes it feels like a comedy because we have to cope with it and that's the kind of things we can do. But I, I think it's an opportunity for us to kind of um, explore spaces and genres that we haven't really been doing so far. And so Other People was a very strange movie, I think, on page. You know, it's about these two, um, two guys who are dating and they have a really weird relationship. They're like an odd couple. Mm -hmm. And you just see them like their conflict is so built into their communication. Like they keep arguing, like, you know, like you mentioned, one of them loves NPR and one just yeah. wants to listen to the to, to top 100. And, mm -hmm. um, and then really they're, then they break into dance numbers, which are, it's a really surreal kind of story. And um, I, I appreciate it because Ohina supported that film and helped yeah. me to make it. And um, I think that they recognize it as well, that that's kind of the next step in what kinds of stories we want to be telling is branching out into genre and trying to occupy spaces that we haven't quite done yet. And so it's kind of exciting to, to find stories that mean something to me, but then filter them through these weird lenses of genre. Prior to the release of Finding Ohana, I talked to film industry veterans, Branscombe Richmond and Kelly Hu about increasing opportunities in Hollywood for indigenous people to tell their stories. They felt like the opportunities are on the rise. And as somebody coming up now, what's your perspective on inclusion in the industry? I agree. I think in terms of, you know, I mean, this is the first year that I'm really getting attention in, in those circles and it's clear that part of that reason is there's a bigger interest in telling Hawaii stories. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the good news. I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. I think to some degree, it's still 
difficult to to bridge that gap from from Hawaii to to Los Angeles. But you know, in in a weird way, the pandemic, while being horrible, has sort of made that gap a lot smaller. And so, you know, the meetings that you would have to drive, you know, you'd for one be in LA and then drive to a lot somewhere and find parking and have to meet with people in person. Those things can happen now wherever you are in the world. So yeah. I think the opportunities are there. I don't know yet how that's going to play out. I think we're in the early phases of that interest. And, you know, there's a few projects that are really picking up. Um, obviously, there are more television shows coming here than ever before. And I think there's a lot of interest in, in filming here. And then beyond that, there are cool stories that are being optioned. And I know some books that were written about this place. And there are TV shows in development, like at HBO and Chris Bright recently, you know, got picked up to write a Disney film of Aloha Rodeo, you know, so yeah. the interest is there and it's an exciting time, but I definitely still think that it could be better, you know, and I think it's a, it's a matter of all of us upping our game, but I really feel like we're poised for that jump and it's just, it's just a matter of time. And if the opportunities come, I think definitely a lot of us here are ready for it. But it's still in its in its infancy, I think. That was Hawaii filmmaker and recent Sundance Institute fellow Bryson Kainoa Chun. He was talking with our Russell Sobiono about the prospects for inclusion of Native Hawaiian stories in the film industry. Well, that's it for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa brings you another culture and arts-filled show. What do you think about the state dropping the outdoor mask mandate? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.